From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. Award-winning journalist Ben Ehrenreich first traveled to the occupied West Bank on an assignment for Harper's Magazine in 2011, went back a year later on a reporting assignment for the New York Times Magazine, and beginning in 2013, stayed an entire year during which he traveled, lived, and talked to Palestinians in the West Bank about the complexities of life under occupation. His new book, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine, vividly documents the specific mechanisms of what he calls the giant humiliation machine controlling Palestinians' lives under occupation. He spoke with Malihe and started by reading a passage from The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. Telling the stories that I am telling, choosing certain stories and not others, means taking a side. This is unavoidable and only a sin to those standing on the other side. No spectators at Chasm's door, wrote the great Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, and no one is neutral here. Not anywhere, but especially not in Palestine. I do not aspire in these pages to objectivity. I don't believe it to be a virtue or even a possibility. We are all of us subjects, stuck fast to bodies, places, histories, points of view. Insistence on objectivity is always, Franz Fanon observed more than half a century ago, directed against someone. For Fanon, that someone was the colonized, the marginalized, and the oppressed. The truth of this soon becomes clear to any journalist or any morally sensitive individual who chooses to work and live in the West Bank. Simply to refer to it by that name, rather than as Judea and Samaria, to call it Palestine, rather than Eretz Israel, is to already be involved. And to base oneself there, rather than in Tel Aviv or West Jerusalem or Washington or New York, is to enter the conflict, whether one wishes to or not. If the nature of this choice is at first not obvious, the soldiers at the checkpoints can be counted on to quickly make it so. That is part of the introduction to your book. And you clearly say that you're not after offering a so-called objective representation of the place and its people. So you're a longtime journalist. You've reported from war zones in Afghanistan and Haiti, I believe. When it came to going and reporting and writing about Palestine, is that when you decided that you really need to leave this so-called journalistic objectivity aside and you really have to approach this place in a different way? Or this is something that you have believed all along as a journalist? It's something I've believed all along. And to my relief, I had a conversation with Ed Wasserman, who's the head of the UC Berkeley Journalism School, a week and a half ago. And he said that they don't teach objectivity anymore, which is a relief. Because I think objectivity as a a journalistic virtue has always been used to disguise one's actual politics. You know, we see it very frequently in the mainstream news outlets where through the veil of objectivity, they're able to hide you know, really clear and powerful biases towards power. You traveled to many, many places in the West Bank, and you spent more time in certain areas and cities and villages than others. Throughout your travels, you heard stories from Palestinians, but you sometimes said, I have seen this 
being retold or repeated by many other people, but I personally cannot verify that. Why did you have to say that? I say later on in that same introduction, I don't believe in objectivity. I do believe in truth. I do believe that journalists have an obligation to be as absolutely rigorous as they can be. And, you know, there are things that everyone says again and again that can't be verified. And sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not. And rather than than some sort of false objectivity, what I can do is be as transparent as possible and tell you what I know and what I don't know and what I can verify and what I can't. That's where the journalist's obligations lie. In this book, you were after finding out the truth. You did some research, of course, before going to Palestine. But what did you know about Israeli occupation and Zionism before you set foot in Ramallah? Before the first time that I went in 2011, I certainly knew more than, considerably more than your average well-informed American reader. Mm -hmm. I'd read as much as I could about the conflict and the occupation, but I was nonetheless really powerfully moved and disturbed when I got there by how bad things were, by how immediate and intimate the transformation of the landscape was, really the brutalization of the landscape by the occupation, the presence of checkpoints, of walls, of settlements on every hilltop, of surveillance infrastructure everywhere. And I think I was also really astounded by the pace of things in a way that nothing I'd read prepared me for, that things were always happening. And, you know, when you live there, it no longer feels fast. It just feels constant. In that brief period, that first time that I was there, land confiscations, home demolitions, arrests, you know, pretty much everywhere I went, something seemed to be happening. Either I spent time briefly in the Jordan Valley and a family was being dislodged from their home by settlers in the settlement across the hill who had decided to camp just outside their property um, Mm. to intimidate them and chase them away, settlers with automatic weapons. In Nabisala, the village outside Ramallah, where I would later spend a great deal of time in the period that I was there, Basim Tamimi, who I would later come to know quite well. When I met him, he was in hiding. By the time I left, he'd been arrested. You actually met him in Ramallah while there were protests going on. It was during the 2011 Arab uprisings. Yeah, I mean, really just by chance, the first day that I set foot in the city of Ramallah was March 15th of 2011. And that day would later become memorialized in the name of the small activist movement called the March 15th movement, which chose that day to stage protests around the West Bank and also in Gaza. And it had been two months since the beginning of the Egyptian revolution everything all over the Middle East was very rapidly changing. And it was a moment of great hope in Palestine too. I think there was some hope that it would break the paralysis that had for so long kept people stuck. And that movement was their cause as they articulated it was to end the division between Fatah and Hamas and to create a unified front against the occupation both in Gaza, where Hamas is in power, and in the West Bank, where Fatah is in power, the movement ended up being repressed by the powers that be, who I think correctly understood it as a threat to their own authority. Yeah, Palestinian Uh, authority, you mean. Yeah. yeah. They beat up some of the protesters, they arrested them. So you went to the West Bank, 
in 2011, mm-hmm. and you were on a project for Harper's Magazine. You were going to write a piece about water issues yeah. in the West Bank. And then you went back again in 2012, mm-hmm. and this time you were going to report for the New York Times Magazine. And in 2013, the New York Times Magazine published your article, which was called, If There Is a Third Intifada, we want to be the ones who started it. And this is about the village, Nabi Saleh. That long feature piece got a lot of traction and a lot of responses in the US. How did you decide from writing just articles about Palestine to writing a book about Palestine? Well, I did want to tell their stories. I didn't want to play the role of the white guy representing Palestinian voices. Mm-hmm. I had two purposes. One was to describe these realities and tell these stories to an audience that for the most part is not exposed to them. Because it was really clear to me in the more time I spent there how tiny an aperture America is allowed to view the situation there through. And it's mainly through Israeli perspectives. Mm -hmm. And the day-to-day realities of Palestinian life are for the most part completely invisible from the U.S. When Americans get to see Palestinians, it's as terrorists or as corpses for the most part. And the absolutely insanely complex structures of the occupation and how it functions, if they're understood here at all, are understood simply as a machine for the security of Israelis, which is not, in fact, I believe, its purpose. So I did want to correct that imbalance and give an American audience an opportunity to really see this and thought that I was in a a unique position to be able to do so. Do you think in the past few years there has been a shift in the way the Palestinian story and the occupation has been covered in the American press? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly when I got that assignment from the New York Times magazine, I was shocked that they were willing to, as I pitched the story to them, it was, I want to go spend time in this Palestinian village and write about things not within the frame of an Israeli security analysis, but just write about this resistance struggle on its own terms. I was completely shocked they went for it. I think a couple of years earlier that wouldn't have happened. Mm. You know, even the fact that this book is being published by a big press, I think. That's what I was surprised. Actually, I was looking at your previous novels, and they were by small publishing houses. And this one is published by Penguin. Yeah, and I think a big press like Penguin wouldn't have taken a risk on this book if they didn't think that there was an an audience for it. And I think there's been a slow process over the last eight or nine years by which what it's possible to say in the U.S. press has gotten broader. There used to be, there was no issue in which censorship in the U.S. press, it's not a word we like to say in America, Mm -hmm. we don't have censorship, we have freedom of the press, but we do. And there was no issue where it was clearer than the issue of Palestine. It was absolutely clear that there were certain things you could not say in mainstream outlets. That, I think, has really changed. You know, an excerpt from this book was published in Politico. Exactly. Um, I have to say, I mean, it had a very provocative title, your article, How Israel Incites Palestinian Violence. Yeah. I didn't choose the title. The editors chose the title. And I think they chose it because it would be provocative and controversial and it would get a lot of attention to the article. But the fact that they were willing to do that, that they weren't trying to hide. So how do you think this happened? I think it's happened um, on a few different levels. The main thing is I think that the violence of the occupation and the violence of the siege in Gaza have become so extreme and so pervasive in the last 
decade. Really every two years there is a new assault on Gaza. Every time it happens the casualty rate goes up. It was 1,400 in 2008-2009, this last time 2,200. It's always about a quarter children, it's always more than half civilians. And I think it does help that the Second Intifada is fading in American public memory. So Americans are not seeing Palestinians as suicide bombers, but they're seeing Palestinians as people who are being severely oppressed and repressed by the Israeli government. And I think a generation is getting older and dying out here that has a really deep sentimental attachment to Israel and identification with the Israeli state. I think younger Americans and even younger American Jews don't have this automatic identification with Israel that previous generations Mm -hmm. did have and are able to see the dynamics of oppression and occupation that sustain Israel for what they are. That's changing the dynamic overall. Its immediate consequences may be small, but I think it's still symbolically really important that Bernie Sanders was able to talk about Palestinian dignity in the Democratic debates with Hillary Clinton. To use the word Palestinian for a major Democratic candidate who's winning And the state fact after that state. the occupation and boycott divestment sanctions is being argued and debated in the process of writing the Democratic Party platform. Yeah, you know, Cornel West and James Ogby have promised to make a real issue of this. I think we all know that the Democratic Party platform, if Hillary Clinton is the candidate, will be, even if they succeed and get some of this language into the platform, it will probably be discarded as soon as uh, she takes office. Nonetheless, the fact that the stranglehold on discourse is being broken open I think is hugely significant. You know, I think we have to remember that Sanders is also a politician. And until a few months ago, Sanders was also refusing to criticize Israel publicly. He was defending Israel's actions in Gaza in the summer of 2014. But I think enough pressure was put on him by his own base, and he saw the polls. He saw the poll numbers, the Pew poll, which showed that more liberal people who identify as liberal Democrats identify with Palestinians than with Israelis. And I think he was reacting to this real and powerful demographic shift in this country. And the fact that the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement in the U.S. and really across the world has made some tangible gains. And some of the activists in Palestine you spoke with, including Bassem, they believed that they have to change their tactics on the ground in Palestine as well. Bassem told you the Second Intifada had been catastrophic. Thousands had been killed and nothing gained but the wall and the checkpoint regime. More land loss, more settlements, more prisoners the complete isolation of Gaza from the West Bank, the leadership had been decimated, the economy wrecked, the people exhausted politically, and he said we went backward. And the solidarity that had been characterized, the first intifada was long gone. Bassem was a youth organizer during the first intifada, giving way in late 2006 to open combat between Fatah and Hamas. Bassem had no illusions that Nabi Saleh, his village, could topple the occupation on its own um, just by having weekly protests. But he said that it could provide a model, he hoped, uh, some path forward out of the 
morass in which the West Bank was sunk. And other activists were thinking about the same models of resisting and fighting the occupation. Yeah, I think that's certainly true of the popular resistance movement, of which the people of Nabi Saleh are certainly a part, and the activists, too, I ended up writing a lot about in Hebron as well, who work out of a center called Youth Against Settlements in yeah. Tel Rumeida. And, you know, certainly Bassem Tamimi was always really clear to me, he didn't disown military resistance, and he didn't condemn it. And I've been attacked, and... Certainly, he's been attacked in most of those same moments since the book came out for writing about these people who refuse to condemn terrorism. And he was always clear that, you know, there's an occupation and Palestinians have the right to resist, like Mm. any people under occupation, through military resistance or any other means. But he felt, and he certainly wasn't alone in feeling, that the tactics used in the Second Intifada were failures and that trying to defeat a superior military power, because Israel is one of the most powerful militaries in the world, on its own terms, through military resistance, was a guaranteed losing battle, and that some other method had to be found. And he did not call it nonviolent. He called it unarmed struggle. Yeah, he didn't. Others, like the guys in Hebron, do use the word nonviolent. But yeah, Bassem always said unarmed resistance. And I think that's because he wanted to avoid the entire question of violence. And I do understand why, that there is a discourse that's very strong in this country in which Palestinians are required, before they can be listened to, before they can be taken seriously, if their voices are going to be at all legitimate, they're required to disown violence. And no such requirement is ever made of Israelis. Certainly no such requirement is made of the United States. But somehow Palestinians are the one player in this who have to, before they can say a word, have to condemn their own right to armed resistance. And he spoke about the first intifada again, where there was this mass movement against the occupation. People were boycotting goods from Israel. People were organizing local committees. This is something that I think Bassam also saw as a continuation of the first intifada. And also the use of internationals in the struggle. How important do you think that has been in Nabi Saleh that are Israeli activists and international activists who joined them in their Friday protest against settlers? How important do you think international activism and international activists have been in globalizing the Palestinian struggle against the occupation. I think, going back a little, I think it's hard to appreciate from 30 years later and from across the ocean how revolutionary a situation the First Intifada was. You know, at the time, the PLO was in exile in Tunisia. There wasn't a centralized leadership, at least at first, within Palestine. And you had this rebellion that really came from the grassroots, that came as the result of years of really quiet horizontal organizing, village by village, creating these village committees to allow villages autonomy. And certainly, I think, people of Bassam's generation who grew up in that situation of really extraordinary solidarity, I think he and others of his generation really feel like their revolution was taken away from them. Mm. Um, Like they were part of a revolutionary struggle. And at some point, I think it's pretty clear 
the point was around 1993, 1994, the Oslo years, that everything they had fought for was taken from them. You describe Oslo as a counter-revolution. Yeah, I think it very clearly was. Oslo, for people who don't know, created the Palestinian Authority. It created this sort of semblance of authority that was in fact still in every meaningful way answerable to Israel. And none of the brutalities of the occupation were lifted, but this extra power structure, this Palestinian power structure, was dropped into place. Inside, Israel was still pulling all the strings. And I think one of the failures that Bassam saw of the and not just Bassam, but that generation of activists saw of the second intifada was, you know, the first intifada also had done a great deal to resurrect the Palestinian liberation movement for an international audience. Again, throughout the 70s, if people in the West who weren't already radicals had a notion of what Palestinians were and did, they thought of Leon Klinghoffer being thrown off the side of the Achille Loro. They thought of cruel acts of terrorism. And the first intifada presented drilled into the minds of people around the world these images of children, of school children, standing up to Israeli tanks with nothing but a stone in their hands. And that was extremely powerful. And I think people of Bassam's generation saw that that had been lost. And one of the things that they tried to do in starting this unarmed resistance movement, which didn't start in Abisal, it started in some of the villages mm-hmm. along the wall, was to open themselves both to an international solidarity movement, and to Israelis who were willing to put down the privileges of Zionism and join them in a common fight against the Because the international activists, their presence would have probably gotten more attention from the international media? I think they knew from the start that they couldn't do this alone, mm-hmm. that the power of this kind of resistance was in many ways dependent on the media, that if the media wasn't present and you had a group of Palestinians marching without weapons or perhaps throwing stones, that they could easily be just very brutally repressed Mm -hmm. by the Israeli army. The repression even with cameras there and even with foreign journalists there is still quite brutal. But the, the IDF would hesitate if there were in fact cameras there and that they could create a kind of symbolic resistance for the international media, which is what they ended up doing. There is a core of, a sort of rotating core, people don't usually stay more than a few years, of really good, courageous, committed foreign journalists who live in Ramallah and around the West Bank. But for the most part, most foreign journalists who come in, come in for a few days or a couple weeks when there's a real outbreak of violence. Yeah, and those journalists who stay, and some of them are, many of them actually are freelancers, we don't get to hear from them very much unless you really look for the reporting. Otherwise, it's not something that you get to see in sort of a mainstream commercial yeah, yeah, corporate for, media all the time. For the most part, the, the, the corporate media correspondents live in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, exactly. which, which does profoundly affect the way they report on the situation. I'm speaking with Ben Ehrenreich. He is an award-winning journalist and author of two novels, Ether and the Suitors. His latest book, The Way to Spring is based on his three years of reporting from the West Bank, and he joins me in studio. In your book, you focus on three places. The village of Nabi Saleh, which has a population of about 500 people. The families in this village have been protesting weekly since 2009 for the right to use their spring water, which has been taken away by the settlers. 
And the city of Hebron that you write, if all of Palestine is marked by Pharaoh's and false realities that overlap but almost never intermingle, Hebron is a cartographic collapse. It is the only city in the West Bank that settlers have permanent presence. And also you talk about a quiet Bedouin community that has been gradually destroyed by occupation and by settlers. Nabi Saleh was the place that really drew me into writing about the occupation generally. And I think the thing there that really grabbed me was in 2009 in, in Nabi Saleh, they started these demonstrations. Every Friday they would try to march down to the spring and every Friday the army would meet them and greet them with various munitions, usually tear gas, rubber-coated steel bullets, sometimes live fire, other things. And the army would come back during the week and they would do house raids and they would arrest people and they'd trash people's houses and they would generally make people's lives very difficult. They would sometimes close off the gate to the village so people couldn't come or go and make their lives extremely unpredictable, bring a lot of violence to their lives. And what really amazed me there was that these people kept doing it week after week. And all they had to do in order to just suffer the kind of baseline humiliation and uncertainties of the occupation was stop. On Fridays, stop. Stay in their houses. Visit their neighbors. Do what people do on Fridays in the Middle East. And they didn't. They kept going. And the costs only piled up. More people went to prison. Two young men were killed. Mustafa Tamimi and Rashti Tamimi. One shot in the face with a tear gas canister, the other one shot in the back with a bullet from an M16. The loss of two young men in a village that small is really hard to overstate. And through all of these losses and through all of this grief, they kept going. And there, I think what fascinated me, not just for its window onto how the occupation functioned, but as a kind of urgent human question of how to resist against an enemy that is much stronger than you, how mm. to resist in a situation where it seems like you can't win. I mean, these are problems that certainly anyone involved in political struggles in the U.S. or in most parts of the world has and to And even with. though at some point, I think it was Bassem that told you, he said, it is not like we're going to get that land back yeah. or we're going to get that spring back, but we need to do these weekly protests because we want to tell them that we exist and we're here. And the costs were huge. And one of the greatest costs was children take part in the protest there. And children would be beaten. Children would be arrested. Children would see their parents arrested. Children would suffer all of these kinds of violence. And it's something that both sympathetic visitors to the village always come home puzzled by. It's something that critics of the resistance there always latch onto, is that they involve their children in this which is, I know from getting to know these people well, was an incredibly difficult and painful and you asked decision them. for them to do. Yeah, and when they talked about it, when Neriman, Bassam's wife, who was also a leader in the movement, talked about it, she said, you know, should I teach my children to be weak? Should I teach them to cower? Should I teach them to be afraid? And this sense that there are no good choices here at all. There is ultimately the possibility of sort of surrender or resistance. This is how they saw it. And to resist means making all of these awful sacrifices. But to surrender means making a different set of sacrifices that were even more difficult and untenable for them. So what has happened to the village of Nabi Saleh? The weekly protests continue? It's now Ramadan, and they're, I think this year during Ramadan, they decided not to hold them. Over the years, especially these last two years, the numbers have really dropped. The consequences inside the village 
have been pretty profound. I think they're a growing part of the village wanted to stop them altogether. I didn't think mm. it was worth it. There were other sort of internal conflicts, which I think is inevitable in any movement like this. It's now been almost seven years that they've been doing this, and they've, I think, accomplished a great deal in terms of getting the word out. Also, there was a pressure from the Palestinian Authority for them to limit their protest or areas that they protested? There was in the very beginning. I don't think they felt that later on, but in the very beginning they were told by the PA that as long as they kept their protests outside of the parts of the village which officially the PA was supposed to be responsible for security in, it was fine. So in other words, the PA didn't care so long as they weren't involved. As long as they were just dealing with the Israelis directly, the PA was fine. But the PA told them to keep it out of the parts of the village in which they would actually be called in to, to do something. And in this case, since then, I think the PA has become much more open in repressing Palestinian resistance, not in Nabi Saleh, but in, in many other parts of the West Bank, very commonly in Ramallah, commonly in Hebron, commonly in the major cities, the PA actively represses, and by actively I mean with many of the same weapons that the Israelis use, but often just with clubs beating down protesters who are attempting to directly protest. I think it's Raja Shahada writes about mm -hmm. the Allenby Bridge crossing, the main crossing the Palestinians are allowed to use between Jordan and the West Bank. There's this mirrored glass, um, and when Palestinians cross, they hand their passports or their documents to a Palestinian official. But behind the mirrored glass, there are Israeli officials who are looking on and making the decisions about who can come and who can go and who won't be allowed to pass. That mirrored glass is a, a good metaphor for how the occupation has functioned since Oslo generally, that there is this facade of the Palestinian Authority, but behind it, in every way that counts, there are Israelis making the decisions. And also you write about how, because the Palestinian Authority employs majority of the Palestinians in the West Bank, and also a lot of them have been absorbed, and they are part of the security infrastructure in the West Bank, they are using also bureaucratic means of preventing or intimidating Palestinians from joining the protests. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the great difficulties that the popular resistance faced, and I think that any kind of resistance faces in Palestine right now, that the PA employs a huge percentage of the Palestinian population. When we talk about the PA security forces repressing Palestinian protest, it's not quite so simple, since a lot of the Palestinian security forces, it's a huge employer, and a lot of the security forces are people who used to be involved in the resistance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, it's extremely galling to them that they're being called on to defend the occupation. Palestinian society is really quite trapped in this way, and it's a trap that so far no one's figured out how to get out of. I am Malihera Zazan, and I'm speaking with award-winning journalist and novelist Ben Ehrenreich about his new book, the Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. In the book, he vividly documents the specific mechanisms of what he calls the giant humiliation machine that's controlling Palestinians' lives under occupation. We'll talk more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
For those of you joining us now, I am Malihe Razazan, and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I'm speaking with award-winning journalist and novelist Ben Ehrenreich about his new book, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. The book is based on his three years of reporting from the occupied West Bank. One of the most powerful parts of your book is your observations and writing about Hebron. You call it Planet Hebron. Yeah, I mean, I've written the book that in the end, it wasn't reading about the structures of the occupation or reading about colonialism that helped me to understand Hebron the best. It was like works of science fiction because Hebron often feels like you've stepped into the twilight zone. As you mentioned, it's the one city in the West Bank with a permanent presence of Israeli settlers in it, which means there's also a powerful presence of the Israeli military, which means there are checkpoints everywhere. The city is sort of infinitely sectioned off with intricate rules about who can be where when. The city was formally divided into H1 and H2, into sections under the control of the Palestinian Authority and under the control, direct control of the Israeli military. Within the section that's under the control of the Israeli military, there are places where Palestinians, where they can walk but not drive. There's places where they can drive and walk. There are places where they can't even walk. The latter, where no Palestinians can be, those are called sterile zones by the IDF. Sterility, meaning free of the germs, the possible infection of a Palestinian presence. And there are endless checkpoints and endless intimate bizarre and hostile contacts between Palestinians and settlers. The settlers live right among the Palestinian population, are a distinctly hostile presence and often a violent presence. The level of uncertainty and fear is extremely high, really at any moment the tiniest thing can set off a conflict. And the settlers are free to come and go? Within the part of Hebron under Israeli control, absolutely. All of the rules which severely restrict the movement of Palestinians do not affect them. You see settlers jogging down the roads which are otherwise completely ghostly because all Palestinians have been And they're gradually them. taking over the Palestinian homes. And, yeah. and with the help of the Israeli military and Israeli occupation forces, they're taking over people's homes. Yeah, it's really been there. It's really house by house. Mm -hmm. There'll be houses which have been, some of which have been abandoned by their Palestinian owners. A lot of Palestinians have been forced out, but a lot have just left because it's impossible to make a living or to survive in those situations. So most people who have other options and can afford to leave have left. You know, so settlers will begin squatting one of those buildings and claiming that they have some legal title to it. And then there's sometimes some sort of pro forma conflict with the Israeli government, where the Israeli government will say, no, you can't stay there, and it'll go through the courts, and then eventually they get the house anyway. You write, people in Hebron used the word normal a lot, and you list a few of the things that people there told you were normal. Screaming. If you hear someone screaming because soldiers are beating him or settlers are beating him, it's normal. Being shot at and having rocks and Molotov cocktails thrown at your house. Or soldiers firing tear gas at school children to mark the beginning and the end of each day of classes. Or being arrested, questioned for hours, and released without charges or apology. That's a normal thing, a Palestinian resident of Hebron told you. 
Yeah. I mean, things that, that um, anywhere else would seem completely outlandish and bizarre and, and traumatic. Palestinians in, in Hebron shrug their shoulders and say, Adi, which means normal. Um, and uh, so much of, you know, I'll give you one example. There's a house in the neighborhood of Tel Rumeda, which is one of the areas that settlers have, have taken over, a house called the Cage House, which is um, surrounded on three sides by settlers and an IDF base, and which has been completely cloaked with uh, wire mesh over all the, the windows and doors because the settlers throw rocks and other things at them. And this family who lives in this house, it's the Abu Aisha house, is only the members of the family who live in the house are allowed to come and go. They have to pass through a checkpoint to get to their house. They can't be visited by anyone, by any other Palestinians who are not on the list. And, and you know, in Palestinian mm. society, where, which is very deeply embedded in family connections, it's this kind of social death to be isolated from, from your family. And it means they're stuck in this house and they, and they can't leave. So I spent a lot of time there. And one of the boys uh, who lives in the house had a bicycle. And he would ride the bicycle around inside the house because it wasn't safe for him to, to ride it outside because the settler's kids would beat him up. And, you know, that, that's one of the things that people shrug their shoulders and say, it's normal, this kid just rides his bike. So how did it happen in Hebron? How did Hebron end up experiencing occupation and um, the expansion of settlements in such a unique way? Well, the, it is to Hebron's... Misfortune, I believe, that it is the site of the uh, what Jews call the Tomb of the Patriarchs. Or the Ibrahimi Mosque. The Ibrahimi Mosque, the, the uh, Haram Sharif, yeah. which is traditionally held to be the site where Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob were buried. So it's, it is a site holy to both religions. So to a certain kind of religious Zionist, it was crucial that Hebron be included in their notion of greater Israel. So a few months after the occupation began in 1967, a group of religious nationalist Jews led by a man named Levinger squatted. They got permission from the IDF to hold a Passover Seder in Hebron, and then as soon as they got there, they refused to leave. And the Israeli government basically, rather than forcing them out, created infrastructure for them to stay and built for them a settlement just outside of the mm. center of the city called Kiryat Arba. And in the years since, they have steadily expanded their presence into the center of the city. Probably the most important moment in terms of the transformation of Hebron city center came in 1994 when a settler originally born in Brooklyn named Baruch Goldstein went into the Ibrahimi Mosque. I believe it was a Friday. I believe it was during Ramadan. Mm -hmm. So the mosque was filled with worshippers with an Uzi submachine gun and, and began shooting. Fire, yeah. And he killed 29 people before, um, before he was stopped. And in the unrest that followed this massacre, the Israeli government decided to close Shuhada Street, which was at the time the main commercial drag in, in central Hebron, to Palestinians and to, and to start shutting Palestinian businesses on Shuhada Street. So although it was an Israeli settler who perpetrated this massacre, it was Palestinians who would suffer for it. So in the name of security for the settlers who had perpetrated this massacre, they began to force Palestinian businesses to close and to force Palestinians out of their homes. And it should be said that the community of settlers in Hebron is a particularly extreme and aggressive bunch. They do still 
people have photos of uh, of Goldstein in their in their homes in Kiryat Arba, the, the the settlement closest to Hebron. There's a monument to Goldstein. He's considered a, a martyr and a hero. And then during the Second Intifada, there were a series. The closures just kept continuing and expanding. There were periods of of weeks at a time and sometimes months at a time when all of central Hebron would be under curfew, mm-hmm. um, which meant people couldn't couldn't leave their homes. And even what this meant was that even for the parts of central Hebron that were not explicitly closed and sealed off to Palestinians, it became impossible to live there. Um, and thousands of Palestinians ended up leaving because they simply couldn't survive. Yeah. And on regular basis, Palestinians are being shot at and killed at the checkpoints in Hebron. But that's not getting any attention as well. But something that was also interesting in the way that people have decided, especially the young people in Hebron, have decided to fight this occupation. Yeah, in Hebron, I mean, the group that I um, spent time with there was a group called Youth Against Settlements, um, led by a man named Isa Amro. Um, And they have... When they first started, they did Friday protests like they do in Nabi and elsewhere. And eventually they stopped. They decided it was simply, it was too predictable. The, everybody knew they were going to do it. And the IDF began retaliating by shutting Palestinian businesses. And, and they wanted to keep business open, not shut them down. So they decided they would have to try something else. The resistance, as they've articulated it, is an attempt really just to keep the community whole. So they do things like rehabbing Palestinian homes, like homes that have been abandoned. So they took a, a building that had been abandoned in Tel Rameda, got permission from its Palestinian owner to turn it into a kindergarten for the for the Palest- for youth in the neighborhood because there was no kindergarten, and that's most of their projects are on that level. But even on that level, these completely nonviolent and, you know, apparently innocuous kinds of projects, like building a kindergarten out of an abandoned home, have been faced with with really brutal and frequently violent repression, arrests, beatings, etc., etc., from the IDF and from the settlers around them. Another place that you focus on is the village of Umm al-Khair. In the South Hebron Hills, it's a quite Bedouin community, and this is a very poor community. It's, it looks poorer than it, than it otherwise would look. To date, they face seven rounds of, of home demolitions. Umulcher is right next to, and by right next to, I mean just meters away from a settlement called Carmel, and Carmel is actually exceptional in that area, and it is not a particularly aggressive settlement. Um, and the South Hebron Hills has a lot of really violent and aggressive settlers. Carmel is one of the more the kind of calmer ones. One of the things that happened while I was reporting there is the settlers built um, maybe a couple hundred meters outside of the perimeter fence of the settlement a, a tent on a ridge at the end of a ridge, um, which they began to use as a synagogue. And they would go out there on Saturday yeah. and they would pray. And what that meant for for Palestinians from Mulher was that they could no longer cross that ridge when they took their animals out to pasture, which meant they had to add a long loop around it to bring their animals to pasture. And there, every time the settlers expand a little bit, they build a, you know, a few more houses, et cetera, et cetera, the, the perimeter that, ha- that has to be kept that they're not allowed on um, so that they don't come anywhere near the settlement is also expanded, which means just slowly the, the distance they have to take their animals to, 
you know, to just for survival, grows more and more. So at at this point, their entire way of life is sort of barely viable, and that was kind of that was actually what was what was interesting to me about Umoher, that it wasn't a situation of you know constant beatings, violence, arrests, et cetera, et cetera. It was just this sort of slow squeeze mm-hmm. that like month by month, year by year, they took a little more, a little more. And while I was there in, um, I guess it was in 2014, people in the village had gotten a copy of the master plan documents. The settlers had, had, had designed a master plan for their settlement and they submitted it to the Israeli government. And it showed the existing part of the settlement as well as the neighborhoods they planned to build to expand it. And what was remarkable about it was that Umulkir was not on the map. There was nothing on this map to indicate that anyone else lived on this land. And this map, this, this master plan document, was, was in fact a death sentence for the village. That if they built to this plan, which they clearly intend to do, the life for the, for the people, the Palestinians who live there, would, would no longer be viable. Part of their way of resisting the occupation is by taking these settlers to court. Yeah, Umulkher, like I think people all over the West Bank, do everything they can to fight in the Israeli court mm-hmm. system. Sometimes there are small victories. Usually it means it just slows the process down. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the Israeli army ignores the, the court's rulings anyway, frequently. But it buys them time. And, you know, the people... In, last time I was in Umukher, which was just about three weeks ago, I was with uh, a guy I've come to know quite well there named Eid Suleiman al-Hadalin, who standing among the the ruins of the houses that had been demolished in April, said they can come back as much as they want. Like, we're not going anywhere. And I'm speaking with award-winning journalist and novelist Ben Ehrenreich about his new book, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine, which vividly documents the specific mechanisms of what he calls the giant humiliation machine that's controlling Palestinian lives under occupation. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. We'll talk more after a break. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihera Zazan, and I'm speaking with award-winning journalist and novelist Ben Ehrenreich about his new book, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. It documents the specific mechanisms of what he calls the giant humiliation machine that's controlling Palestinians' lives under occupation. There is a collective struggle against the occupation, but within that collective struggle, they're separated from each other. There's fewer than two million people, which means that it's about the entire population of the West Bank is about the size of a a small American city, which means everybody knows each other. And certainly the people in Nabi Saleh know the people in Hebron. And occasionally people will turn out in solidarity for each other's other's events and, and, and things. But Umukher is a little bit different because it's Bedouin and it does mean that they really are isolated from the rest of Palestinian society as well. But generally, I, w- I would say while there is some, some solidarity, like some concrete solidarity in terms of acting together, and occasionally there are actions which bring everybody from all over the West Bank together, at the moment things are really atomized and things are really fragmented. And that's partly a, I think, partly a result of the restrictions that the occupation has brought to the West Bank. And it's partly a result, I think, of the you know, long process of Osloization, to coin an ugly word, that people are very much engaged in their 
individual activities without a as much of a sense of a broader collective struggle as used to exist in, in Palestine. I think Oslo has made it harder for people to conceive of a of themselves as a collectivity. I think the 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 effects of Oslo have been to really focus people on their on their own lives and to to break down the kind of solidarity that used to exist and that in many ways those changes within Palestinian society are a more powerful obstacle to resistance than any of the munitions or, or the concrete structures of the occupation. I thought your book was very pessimistic, but you say, quote, I do believe that this book is a work of optimism and of hope. I, I think I saw hope in two places. And you're right, I think in terms of concrete possibilities, things are as, as bad as they've ever been. But I couldn't help but see in the act of resistance, in people's insistence on their own dignity, despite all obstacles to that, something very powerfully human, which has not yet been defeated, and I don't think can be very easily defeated. And as awful as things are right now, that's something that I found very profound. Um, in terms of more concrete and pragmatic hope, at the moment, I don't think it's coming from Palestine. It's certainly not coming from within Israeli society. But I do think that some of the ways that the political situation in the U.S. is changing will, not in the short term, but may in the in the slightly longer term, really have powerful effects there. You know, we shouldn't forget that the U.S. sends $3.1 billion of military aid to Israel every year. And Israel wants more. And, it, and Netanyahu has been, been fighting to bring that above $5 billion a year. Obama wants, wants to settle for somewhere in the fours because he's a, uh, a man of great <laughs> integrity. And that's powerful. And, and I think it's, it's really important for Americans to remember as hopeless as things seem over there and as hopeless as, as they may in fact be at the moment, the one set of people who really do have power right now are Americans. And I think that can have two, two main thrusts. And one is politically, that Americans need to start pushing their government to stop funding this occupation, to stop purchasing all of the, the mechanics of death which, which the Israeli government uses on Palestinians. And the other one is economic. It's BDS. It's the boycott. That there've been, one can get depressed here in the U.S. because there's there've been some successful attempts in various states to blacklist BDS and 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 things like that. But what this, I think, this is actually a sign of hope. It means that they're quite scared and they're quite worried about the success of of BDS in various states and on college campuses. And every bit of opposition to the BDS movement needs to be understood as, as just that, as a, as a sign of its strength. And a you know, several years ago, we interviewed a Norwegian activist, and he spoke about the fact that, yes, Islamophobia was on the rise in Norway, but so was the, the support for the Palestinian rights. Mm -hmm. Do you think in the U.S. the rise of Islamophobia has hurt the cause of the Palestinian rights because Israel and its supporters in the U.S. always try to take advantage of heightened episodes of racism and Islamophobia and the racist and Islamophobic rhetoric to further Israel's 
colonial expansionist policies. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. That's I, I don't want to predict, but that's where the battle is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, I think the Netanyahu certainly recognizes that's where the battle is. After the Orlando shootings, Netanyahu released this a very long statement expressing his great solidarity with, with the American people and, and, and his great solidarity with gays around the world, which is laughable. But but he's been making the case again and again that Israel and the U.S. and the West generally face a common enemy, which is, you know, Islamic terror. And I think it's important to remember from here that this is not, in, in Palestine, it's not an Isla- a religious question. The, the issue is the occupation. This is a question of a colonialist occupation, not of, a, of an ancient religious dispute. There were basically almost no, very few frictions between Jews and, and Muslims in Palestine until the Zionist presence began in, in the um, early 20th century, and really in, until Britain began to favor a Zionist solution there. And it's no surprise that Netanyahu, the Israeli government, just approved an additional $18 million for the expansion of the settlements in the West Bank. It's always been, the the issue has always been one of colonialist expansion, I think. And Netanyahu will keep doing that. There at the moment within Israeli society, unfortunately, no breaks to stop this. But I I think from here, from the U.S., it it is possible to exert more influence. So how do you feel about how your book has been received in the U.S. so far? It's certainly harder to get a book about Palestine out to the American audience than about almost anything else, despite all of the fractures in, in, the, in the discourse that I've been talking about. It, it's, it's still an uphill battle. And I think, you know, there have been some great reviews. There was a wonderful review from Charles Glass in The Intercept. There have been... Some of the review, the, the ones that make me laugh a, bit, a little bit are the ones where the reviewers are clearly afraid to take a stand, and the reviewers write a lot of things like, some readers may react, and because, you know, it's still a touchy enough issue that, that people who are not particularly brave individuals <laughs> are afraid to, uh, to come down strongly on either side. And, you know, that's fine. I'm happy that it's getting out there. I'm happy it's getting the attention that it's getting. I'm happy that it's getting people talking. So far, I'm quite happy because the, the one tactic that is used to prevent discussion of these issues is, is not even dismissal, it's, just, it's, it, it's ignoring things. It's not reviewing them, it's not writing about them, it's not allowing them to enter the, the public discourse. And for the most part, that hasn't been happening with this book. It's been, it's been slipping past the various gates. So I'm happy. It, it's, it's forcing, I think, a conversation or beginning to force a conversation that this country um, is ready for, even if its various media gatekeepers are, are nervous about it. So covering Palestine, spending so much time in Palestine, how has it changed you as a journalist? You know, I think one of the things that was attractive to me um, when I first started w- working there was that so many of the issues that I've been writing about in the U.S., things like border militarization, things like the militarization of policing, um, um, a lot of the trends that I was seeing happen in the U.S. were happening there as if, like, the contrast had been upped, Mm -hmm. um, as if everything had been boiled down and and you could just see the outlines of everything much more sharply. Um, So I don't know that it's, it's changed me in changed my politics or changed me in any really identifiable ways, except that it's, I think I can 
see things with a, a level of clarity that wasn't always possible working within an American context. You know, I came back to the U.S. at the end of the summer of 2014, and when I came back, things were still happening in Ferguson. And, you know, having come back from the, the West Bank, where it constantly been at, at protests um, where young people were confronting you know, security forces and being shot at, had tear gas shot at them, and then to see the exact same thing happening in Ferguson. It's not just a, a superficial parallel. And to be able to understand something like, like what happened in Ferguson and so many other American cities, mm. like this is how governments deal with populations that they no longer have a use for. Mm. Um, and I think this is something we're going to see in more and more parts of the world as economic changes mean that like, there are huge parts of every population that the powers that be no longer have a use for. And they want to corral them in prisons and they otherwise want to get rid yeah, of them. They want to wall them off yeah. and not deal with them. And that's certainly true of the black population in the U.S. It's absolutely true of the, you know, the Palestinian population. And, and, and I think that is, is a global reality that we're going to see more and more of. And this is something that Israel has been doing for the past 68 years. Yeah, and, and I think one thing it means is that the the lessons of yeah. resistance in Palestine, it's not just a local Middle Eastern issue. I mean, the, the, I think all of us can look to Palestinian resistance as we try to figure out how to confront these powers wherever we are. Ben Ehrenreich is an award-winning journalist and the author of two novels titled, respectively, Ether and The Suitors. His latest book, The Way to the Spring, is based on his three years of reporting from the occupied West Bank. He spoke with Melihe Razazan. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.